All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We are live here from the KFES Digital News Desk. We're joined by Jason Sides. He is with uh, Southeast Missouri State University. He's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science, uh, Philosophy and Religion. And uh, Jason, how are you doing today? Well, I'm uh, doing fantastic. Excited to talk to you and share some knowledge with our audience and help them get a little bit more of a uh, clear picture about what's going on right now. Absolutely. And uh, to do that, we, yeah, we're taking a look at the um, situation. You know, we, we've had quite a few uh, political stories here recently, whether it's debates, uh, government shutdown, you know, the part, uh, questions about partisanship and, and how that's playing out in Congress right now. Just to start things off with where we're at, we're uh, a few debates in right now, and uh, yeah, what 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 are we taking away from where we are in in this presidential uh, race? You know, as parties are figuring themselves out and, and going forward. So, I think the one thing that's kind of interesting that you see right now is that the Republicans who are assembling to debate, um, I think, are coming to the realization that they're not impacting Trump's ability to win the nomination in 2024, right? Um, at least initially, some of them were talking about, you know, I'm going to present a strong challenge to Trump and things of that nature. But as the debates have unfolded, and some of the folks have been either removed from the stage or have found no traction, you start to see more of this just kind of desperate ad hominem attacks, people throwing out, you know, um, one-liners that are kind of desperate, all in the hopes of trying to damage Trump um, among Republican voters. But it doesn't seem to be working as much. And as a result, you know, these debates are just becoming less and less relevant. Now, over the weekend, there was a story, and this is just, you know, an example of the candidates realizing things aren't really working out for them. Um, Governor DeSantis was asked, hey, would you, you know, want to be the vice presidential nominee for Trump? And he said no, um, which leads me to believe that there's some recognition that, um, you know, it's going to be Trump's to win. Maybe if I'm ambitious like Governor DeSantis, I should plan for the time after Trump because my ability to do anything now is pretty much non-existent. Right. And he was one of the stronger ones. Um, Ambassador Haley is running and she's trying to take up the mantle of the George W. Bush Republican Party and, you know, advocating um, an interventionist foreign policy. And that's not really gaining traction beyond, you know, 10, maybe 10 percent of the Republicans in the primary. So she's not going to be a viable option to stop him either. Um, once you take DeSantis and Haley off the stage, I mean, there's not really anyone left who's going to pose a serious threat. You know, certainly not Governor Christie, who's, you know, making um, making statements about how he's going to call President Trump Donald Duck or something like that because he didn't show up at the stage. So the point of all this is to say is that, you know, when you look at the debates, the folks who are up there on the stage just don't really offer any kind of alternative to Trump for most Republican voters. Um, for those folks in D.C., those folks in the political class, maybe they do look like viable choices, but for your typical Republican voter, they're just like, nah, 
not really interested. I think I'm going to go with somebody else. All right. Um, and as as we're looking ahead, then at as as things continue to unfold, um, do we expect to see some? I, I I mean, do do we expect this to be a increasingly thinning crowd? Um, I know that there were kind of different evaluations about different performances of uh, within the actual dynamics of the um, of the debates, but uh, in in terms of actual overall effects. Uh, yeah, do we expect them to to thin out fairly quick then heading into this, uh, into 2024? Yeah, I think once you get to the point where people are actually casting ballots, um, these folks are going to fall off very, very quickly, right? Right now, these debates are proceeding because the RNC and, you know, Fox News and other media outlets wanted to present them to the Republican voters. The problem is Trump's not there. And so no one's really watching these debates. Um, they're committed to these debates before, you know, ballots are going to be cast. But, you know, there's not really a whole lot that people are taking away from these debates other than some of these folks look like they might be viable candidates in the future. They're just not quite there yet today. Um, so once, you know, we actually get to the process of attending either primaries or caucuses, um, once that happens, I think that you're going to see this opposition, the assembled opposition up on the debate stage, just fall off really quickly. You know, running a presidential campaign, a viable one, um, is going to be expensive. It's going to take a lot of money and a lot of staff. And it's not clear to me that there's enough of a hunger to keep resisting Trump throughout the nation among Republican voters to justify a lot of these candidates spending money when it's clear that they obviously are facing a very, very uphill battle. So I think what you're going to see is, you know, there might be a little bit more discussion going into the fall. But once we get closer to those first primaries and caucuses, I think some of these folks are going to just realize, look, it's not going to happen for me. Um, you know, I tried, I tried to shape the debate, but really I got to do something else if I want to help reframe the Republican Party in a way that reflects my ideals. All right. And just uh, before we move on, I think that maybe we, we talk about the the dynamics as far as the, the precedents uh, going into this. Um, well, I mean, I think that the, the last several years have been uh, the story of numerous uh, overturned precedents, whether it's, you know, um, former presidents being defeated, coming back and then running again um, after that situation, after that case, whether it's uh, we talk about the the different the ages of the president uh, of the current president and, and uh, former President uh, Trump uh, having beaten that record as well. It, it, it seems interesting as well, just the dynamic of 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 the presumed contenders of Biden and Trump, you know, having potentially then a, a rematch going forward. Uh, any any thoughts on, on that overall, what that means, what that looks like? I think, you know, the one thing you're going to have is a different dynamic, dynamic from the standpoint of um, Biden is going to have to be more active in campaigning this time. Now, the last time when he was campaigning, um, we were still dealing with COVID, and so he was campaigning through Zoom from his house, and that allowed his handlers 
to place him in situations that worked for him and made him appear more presidential. Well, COVID is not as much of a pressing concern for much of the public. And as a result, there's going to be an expectation that Biden be active and Biden be out there campaigning for votes. Well, <clears throat> given his age and given, you know, some of the um, difficulties he has on the stump as of late, I think him going out on the campaign path is going to be a little bit more potentially dangerous for his candidacy. Um, you're talking about a candidate who, over the course of his career, had a tendency to engage in verbal missteps to begin with, who's now kind of reaching his golden years and has only gotten worse in his tendency to slip up. If he has to go out on the stage and there's more of those kind of mistakes, um, I think the one thing we'll probably see is that this time he'll be judged more harshly for those missteps in comparison to Trump. I think last time there was more of a benefit of the doubt to kind of say, well, you know, Joe's the vice president. He's in you know, his basement. Zoom isn't really a friendly technology. Um, some of these events are artificial because, you know, people aren't there. And so the benefit of the doubt was given to him to justify why he wasn't as spectacular in these events. But going forward, that's going to be off the table. So he's going to have to be actively involved. And he's going to be in front of more people who are paying attention than they are now. What that looks like when he starts to make some missteps <clears throat> as his campaigning against President Trump in this rematch is going to be interesting to see. The other thing you're going to have is that Trump's going to have to pick another vice presidential candidate. Now, depending on who he picks there, you could have the injection of somebody who's younger, um, more favorably received by the public, somebody who has an established track record that makes many Republicans um, feel more secure with a second Trump presidency. Biden, if he stays on the ballot, is committed to Vice President Harris. There's a known quantity on that side with both President Biden and Vice President Harris. Trump does have the possibility to mix things up a little bit if he picks a vice presidential nominee that offers maybe youth insight and other attributes that kind of complement where he's at in his political career. So maybe like a Christie gnome, um, somebody younger, somebody like that who can bring a little bit of political capital that Trump doesn't have or doesn't possess. All right. Um, as we, we look then, and I, I know that these are, these are probably words that a lot of folks are, are tired of hearing, especially since we managed to avoid it, is the government <laughs> shut down. Uh, but I would be curious if you've got any thoughts about um, kind of what we saw play out, the, the, the situation. You know, of course, we've got other words that uh, people may be tired of hearing, like partisanship and hyperpartisanship in, in terms of how they, they may be playing out in Congress. Any thoughts on what all this means uh, right now for Congress going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're seeing is kind of the result of a long period of transition within Congress, right? Um, Congress has become an institution that's dominated more by the extremes on both the left and the right um, over the last 30 years. 
So that ability to compromise and to set partisanship aside has evaporated since then. Now, there are more extreme Republicans, but there's also more extreme Democrats. What we're watching disappear is that moderate middle on both sides of the aisle that were able to bring people together in the past. Now, if you look at um, some of the more moderate folks who are within Congress right now, you think of people like um, Senator Manchin out of West Virginia. Um, you might think of Senator Tester from Montana, both Democrats who are to the left of the average voter, but not that far left and not on all issues. Well, they act as kind of this glue that can bring both sides together within the Senate, but they're too far in number to really be effective in bridging those ideological gaps. And so as a result, um, what you see is that, you know, the partisan extremes or the ideological extremes are then empowered to demand that policy reflect their concerns when in fact the entire body or the entire country may not be quite there or with them on those issues. So, you know, without people who can bridge those gaps, what you see is the whole institution start to move in different different directions. The Republicans move more conservative, the Democrats move more to the left, and that ability to bring people together in the interest of the country is minimized. Um, I think, you know, you're seeing a slightly different dynamic in the House in that McCarthy is going to have more moderates within his um, Republican representatives. And some of those moderates do want to work with some of the moderate Democrats, and they did come closer to reaching a middle ground. The problem is, is that um, Speaker McCarthy is going to be dependent upon some of the more ideologically extreme Republicans to maintain his speakership. And so some of those more ideologically driven Republicans have said, look, here's a certain list of things we will tolerate and we will not. Now, the stories coming out of D.C. is that with this most recent kind of agreement that McCarthy's able to broker, that he did get some concessions from some of the Democrats. He also provided some concessions to them. Um, one of the concessions was that there's not going to be um, a very significant increase in Ukrainian aid for the current conflict with Russia. Not yet, um, at least not in the extension, but that was a major concession. Well, some folks on the right end of the spectrum um, looked at that concession as a violation of some of the promises that McCarthy has made over time to them, and they feel a little bit betrayed. Now, most of them are not talking about um, undermining the McCarthy speakership, but there is going to be Representative Matt Gates out of Florida who has said, look, um, you said you were going to do certain things. You didn't live up to them entirely. Um, as a result, I'm going to try to end your speakership. And so Gates is now in a position where he's trying to work with the more liberal Democrats to end Speaker McCarthy's um, term as speaker just to create something new, something different. But I bring this up to, you know, to illustrate how far some of these folks on the ideological end of the Republican Party are and how that's kind of um, 
making them a little bit more absolutist in their approach to dealing with other people in the body. What you're seeing play out with this debate over the budget is kind of all these forces at work. And what becomes really problematic um, for the institution is that the speaker is going to be in a very difficult position where he has to appeal to not only his very far right members, his conservative members and more moderate members, but he also has to bring on board some Democrats to reach a critical vote total to get anything through. Um, that's going to be difficult in and of itself. But if he does anger those very, very conservative Republicans and they do undermine his speakership, we're in a situation where the body's thrown into chaos again. And I don't know that that's going to be in the best interests of the country over the long term. All right. Um, anything else to mention today before we wrap up? Anything else, any other political items that uh, you're keeping your eye on as we go forward? Well, I mean, I'm still kind of keeping track of what's going on in Kentucky. You know, we have the gubernatorial race in Kentucky, and that's kind of shaping up in an interesting way. And it does appear to be more competitive than people had expected a year ago. But in addition to what's going on in Kentucky, I mean, there's some interesting dynamics that are opening up in various states. So, for instance, um, Ohio is moving more towards the Republican Party than people had expected. So over the next you know, year, it's likely to be the case that Ohio no longer is a bellwether of what's going on in the country because it's going to be more to the Republican side of the aisle um, than it had in the past. It's going to be more similar to Missouri than, say, a more competitive state. Some of the other states in the Rust Belt, like Pennsylvania, are also seeing some dynamics emerge that are interesting. Um, if you cross over into Pennsylvania from Ohio, you're now looking at a state that had been trending a little bit more Democrat, but is now displaying more of a populist reaction to some of what was going on in Pennsylvania, especially some of the issues of crime in Philadelphia. And so you're starting to see some dynamics emerge there that suggest that, you know, the Republicans may not take over, but the Democrat hold on the state may not be as permanent as people had expected. So I think, you know, as you compare different states, you start to see some very interesting dynamics emerge, which suggests that we're going to be in for a lot of change, not only at the national level, but at the state level across various states in the next election cycle. So that'll be interesting to watch unfold as we go through 2024. All right. Jason Science, political science professor at Southeast Missouri State. Thank you for your time today. No, thanks. I'm just happy to be on and just um, help provide knowledge about what's going on. Absolutely. We're glad to have you. And uh, thank you to our audience as well. We appreciate your time here today. Hope you'll tune in again. We're going to turn it back over to Local News Live. Stick around. More just around the corner.